This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I want to share something really cool that happened recently in the Facebook group. Somebody asked about faith-based children's books that present alternatives to some dominant theological models. Think lots of penal substitutionary atonement or wrathful views of God. And that turned into this awesome little crowdsource session. Uh, Many of you know that my wife and I are expecting our first child in February. And so we were both like watching that list develop and commenting and We're going to grab some of those books for our little guy. And it was just an awesome moment. And I feel like sharing it. Now that Facebook group is just for patrons of the show. So this is a bit of an ad, I suppose. I'm sorry about that. But if you are a patron and you didn't see that, go find that thread. uh, Because that was a really cool resource. And I love seeing the group become kind of a crowdsource resource for all kinds of questions that people have. Uh, Enough of that ad. If you want to become a patron patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod.com click become a patron there's a link in the show notes to that 
One other announcement. Um, this will be the last full regular episode until after the new year. Over the next two weeks during the holidays, I'm going to post a couple previous episodes that either came out a while ago before a good chunk of our more recent listeners arrived to the show or episodes that have had fewer plays than others, but that I think turned out really great. I actually haven't decided which ones yet, but that's my rubric. So to today's episode, um, I have no idea. I really have. I, I don't even have a way of, of guessing how many of you have read Plato's Cave Analogy or have heard of it. If you took an undergrad philosophy course, you should have read it and studied it, talked about it, but maybe you didn't. Um, I'm sure it's going to be new to a lot of you. It is probably the single most famous passage in all of Western philosophy. Feel free to email me if you think I'm wrong about that. Uh, And in my mind and in my own life, it is a gift that keeps on giving. It seems truer to me than it did when I first read it at 18. Um, Anyway, so I thought it'd be cool to do an episode about this. Uh, It's really related to Christians going through deconstruction, reconstruction, etc. And who better to join me today than a philosophy professor who teaches the cave, Patrick McDonald. He's a Catholic and he teaches at Seattle Pacific University here in town. So let's dive in. Well, Patrick, thanks so much, man, for joining me today. I thought of this episode as a a general idea to talk about Plato's Cave because uh, it remains for me like one of the things I've learned in various philosophy classes and, and talked about people over the years that has just stuck with me the most. I mean, I think it's famous for that being one of these kind of brilliant moments in, in uh, philosophical history. And uh, you teach it, you teach it in multiple classes. And when I brought it up to you, you were like, yeah, great. I'm, I'm your guy for that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited. And let's talk a little bit before we get into the cave. Let's talk about both Plato, the thinker and Socrates, the character slash what we know about Socrates, the actual person. So let's start with him. So what do we actually know about the person Socrates? Okay. Well, uh, what we what we know about the person of Socrates is uh, not ironically uh, as vexed as what, what people debate about the person of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. when viewed from a historical perspective. Different uh, people who are trying to take a historical approach uh, disagree about uh, the sources of of his biography and so on and so forth. Just as taking a historical approach, people have questions about Jesus. And uh, so in any case, I don't think there is one unanimous one. However, what I think is uh, agreed upon is he he was born, I believe, around 450 BC. He was a veteran of several important battles in the war against Sparta and its allies in the Peloponnesian War. Uh, everybody agrees he played the role of a kind of gadfly going around the city of Athens and asking people questions that made them uncomfortable, that they had a difficult time answering, and that uh, brought up things that some people thought were obscure and maybe a waste of time. Um, sort of like yeah. a uh, a philosopher version of an Old Testament prophet in terms of the gadfly and, and making people uncomfortable, trying to get at some uncomfortable truths. Uh, but whereas a prophet, at least in the way that they're depicted in the Hebrew Bible is they are speaking on God's behalf very, very clearly. And they're, they're very clear about that for the most part. Whereas Socrates is kind of skeptical of the knowledge of what, what we know about the gods in, in his non-Judeo, in his Greek culture, right? 
Right. Although there's a really important twist to this. Um, so at least on, and so now we have, you know, part of the issue of many of the sources that, uh, especially I rely upon for uh, Socrates, are, you know, rely on Plato. And uh, right. I hope this isn't offensive to say, but I've started calling Plato Socrates a Socrates fanboy. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's his hero and he provides a version of him that is, you know, trying to make his hero look like a person of integrity, like yeah. somebody you would follow. But Socrates, I think, in, on a number of accounts, talks about this divine sign. Sometimes they called it his daemon. And uh, anyway, he, uh, in in uh, a couple of key places in Plato's uh, depiction of him, like at his trial in the Apology, explicitly invokes the will of the god as giving him his mission. That's right. So, okay, let's talk about Plato. So people know the name. They they Most people could say... Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that's Greek philosophy. Um, what is it important to know about Plato as a thinker, as a remixer of the historical person of Socrates, so that we can more robustly talk about the cave analogy? Right. Now, this is this is really helpful. Um, so Plato and, you know, and writes dialogues that feature Socrates as a character. And there's some dispute about whether they're early or whether they're just different, but... Uh, one in particular I talk about with my students, the Euthyphro, is famous for bringing, bringing up the question and, and wrestling with the question of holiness or piety, and it doesn't resolve. They go through several options, several attempts to define this virtue, and, and it's unsuccessful at the end. And this is a theme of many of these early dialogues where Socrates is represented as the character who dismantles ideas. But in doing so, helps people to realize explicitly uh, their ignorance. And he says that's sort of his wisdom is he's the one who knows what he doesn't know. And that human wisdom is very uh, small or insignificant in compared to divine wisdom. So with the Republic, it, it appears now that uh, Socrates is a vehicle for Plato to build his own views in a systematic right. sense. Yeah. More of a mouthpiece. Uh, at the risk of maybe offending some listeners... Uh, an, an analogy here might be the Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels and then the Jesus of John, maybe less clearly than it is where Socrates is, is really just Plato's mouthpiece character. But there is a sense in which the Jesus of John goes on these really long speeches about I and the Father are one, all this stuff that he doesn't really talk that way in the other Gospels. And so there's a sense in which the writer of John is is using in some spots anyway, using Jesus as a mouthpiece for the type of doctrine that was developing about Jesus uh, in later early Christianity. That strikes me as a fair analogy. Okay. Again, uh, I, I grant that, you know, these are much disputed questions, but uh, there's there's no doubt that the doctrine, doctrinal content of John's gospel is interestingly unique and developed in certain themes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so we get to the Republic, Republic, which is Plato's kind of master work. It's what people read as undergraduates. I read it in my intro to philosophy class. Um, and this is where we get the cave analogy. So let's just run through how this analogy works. Like what, what's the, what's the scenario that he sets up? Okay. So the, the basic scenario of, of the cave starts something like this. It, it imagines uh, a scene, a tableau in a cave where there's a line of people who are chained or fixed to chairs and they cannot move. And all they can see is the wall of the cave. 
and the entirety of their life experience is viewing the shadows on the wall. Uh, and then uh, it, it says also visualize behind them, uh, but they can't see this, uh, to be a walkway. And behind the walkway is a fire. And along the walkway are people who are carrying, you know, maybe on a stick or on some kind of carrying item, uh, things that the fire causes to cast a shadow along the wall. So you might say uh, you know, figures of horses or figures of armor or figures of ships or figures, you know, I don't know how they would do this, bodies of water. But uh, they also, he talks about in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in the Republic, uh, imagine that they're making sounds and the sounds can echo off the walls of the cave. But to the prisoners, it looks like, you know, it seems like, it doesn't look like, it sounds like the sounds are coming off, you know, out, out of the shadows. Right. And so that's their reality. Their reality is that they everything can't move. So they, they don't know move. that there are people behind them. They don't know there's a fire. All they've got is the shadows and the sounds that are ricocheting off the wall. That's right. Yeah. And they think that is what's real. And they that's don't the real know world. better. That's, that's it. And then uh, he says, imagine that one of them is cut loose and turned around. And he actually uses some terminology like forcibly. Uh, they, like, they didn't volunteer. They didn't get a text. Interesting. They were forcibly caused hmm. to be freed from these shackles and turned around. And, and, and he goes through a, a couple of you know, uh, comments here. But basically he says, imagine as they face the fire how dazzled their eyes would be, how disoriented they would be when asked to try to make out what the fire is or any of the things that might be illuminated by it. Yeah, they would uh, They would need a moment for their eyes to adjust, right? Just like you do if you walk out of a movie theater or something. That's right. And he goes, he goes, you know, he goes to some pains to talk about the painfulness of this. Um, and, and so that's one, the first big step is making one's way uh, towards just the fire inside the cave. But uh, he then makes a point of saying, but they continue past this middle stage and out out of the cave and into the light of day. And of course, their disorientation is, is even greater as they try to make their way, as they try to make head or tail out of whatever it is that they are encountering in the, the full light of day. But as their eyes adjust, as they get uh, acclimated, they start to actually experience real things, real trees. Real bodies of water. Real ships. Yeah. Real ships, Not exactly. Not just the shadows of shapes of them. That's right. right. He doesn't talk about real food. I think he uh, doesn't want to get into that, but I can imagine that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, real food. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if I recall correctly, it's a laborious path out of the cave. Is, are there any other details about from seeing the fire and the shapes to arriving out in the sunlight? Uh, and any other important details along that path? Um, I, I don't think that and then, then that, I, that I can recall that are really crucial, except for just that the whole, you know, like you said, it is laborious. And this is meant to depict the laborious process of, of coming, you know, of being educated. Right. So, okay, before we get into any sort of theological, theistic takes on this, just give us a mainstream kind of reading or understanding your average philosophy professor teaching this somewhere in the Western world. What's what's kind of the... Uh, interpretation of the cave. I think the main interpretation uh, is that um, this is one way of understanding Plato's uh, theory about the structure of reality, that the, the reality is broken into two you know, main levels, the visible or the sensible and the intelligible. And the sensible is the world of change, the world of physical objects, but also the world of their reflections, 
which are uh, imitations in a sense of uh, lesser realities. So people might have, have heard the phrase the forms or a platonic ideal or this is this is his idea of so this is of course from the 4th century BC uh very old idea that basically the stuff of this world this desk that we're it's in between the two of us uh these these are like pale imitations of like a true form of a desk or uh, and a good action we take a feeling of love we have toward our spouse these are pale versions of like the form of love of goodness uh and this is his way of sort of describing how we can have this pretty good world, but we have this sense that there's something even better. And the more we think about it, it seems like there is this perfection that we can almost taste, but we never experience it. But it, it seems like it must be there. Am I, am I doing that kind of right? Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And so, you know, this, this uh, greater reality, the, the, let's just call it the reality of the forms, you know, in a sense, the originals that make the uh, instances what they are. So that, you know, the table itself, he talks more about values like justice itself, love itself, right, beauty yeah. itself. And um, that's what would be encountered outside the cave. And the cave is a metaphor for then getting outside of the limitations of these lesser forms of reality and out into the real thing. Yeah. So the way that I understand it, or remember understanding it, is that, you know, I was a philosophy major. And so getting out of the cave is becoming a philosopher <laughs> or learning philosophy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get out into the sunlight. Now you're dealing with the real stuff of the world. There's a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit convenient to think of it that way. But there's, you can imagine thinking of this in all kinds of ways. Let's say you want to become an architect, but all you ever do is look at pictures of cool buildings and then all of a sudden you go to school and you actually learn how those buildings don't fall down and how to construct them. And you learn about aesthetics. Well, in some sense, you're now dealing with the actual realities of making buildings, not simply a sort of on a page, a two dimensional photograph of a building. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, mm-hmm. you know, you can go wide with this. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I'm thinking about architecture. What would be the equivalent of a master architect? But uh, Frank Lloyd Wright or somebody like somebody that. like yeah. that, right? Who's yeah. really gotten deep into uh, a lot of what's involved in, in everything we would call the architecture craft or the, the art of architecture. And one of the things that I think that I often say is, is that there's a certain independence that goes with that, that when you've arrived and, and in a sense, what Plato would say, gotten acclimated to at least seeing aspects of the sun, uh, you, you don't depend upon your teachers in the same way. Mm, interesting. There's a kind of an expertise. There's an expertise yeah. and, and a freedom from anything like, you know, the limitations of the script or the rules. Um, yeah. So, so it's sort of like when you think about screenwriting, you know, um, that's one of I like movie podcasts. That's kind of like my hobby. And I watch a lot of films and people will talk about how at the beginning you need to know the rules of writing a story. You need to have conflict. The characters need to change this way and this way. You know, eventually you get good enough that then you can start to break the rules, but not until you first understood the rules. And so there's this and, and you might also say you don't really want to take advice on whatever the thing is you're trying to learn, whether that be becoming a better person, uh, your pastor, your teacher, your whatever, unless they've gotten to the point of being outside the cave. Otherwise, they're just repeating the shadows against the, the wall. And isn't this the bind we find ourselves in is how do we know 
which of our pastors or writers or thinkers or our family friends are out of the cave and who's still just in the cave and just is a narcissist and repeating stuff that they think is real, but they don't actually know what's real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I wish I had the answer. I mean, I, I'm here to talk about Plato's Republic. So one short answer is <laughs> the Republic is one attempt to provide a manual of that process. Yeah, It's right. just one attempt. And I will just say this. Plato's, Plato's uh, Republic uh, has a, a strongly practical dimension to it. He goes on at great length to talk about the practical training that his philosopher leaders would have, which includes, of course, a lot of military training, uh, practical arts, uh, all of, of course, the you know what we might call a standard curriculum of geometry, logic, especially mathematics. They probably learned to ride horses, had to go out in the fields, all these kinds of things. So they're basically philosophers who 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 know how to actually do things. Yeah, philosopher kings is the phrase. That's right, right. or That's warriors, often, really. Yeah, philosopher yeah. warriors. So translated different ways. So. Let's get your take on a theistic reading of the cave. And then I've got, then that's where we'll spend a lot of our time today. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, there's a couple of clues in Plato's Republic that he seems to be talking about something uh, that that is not only just an ultimate reality, but something that has uh, the kind of goodness and the kind of perfection and the and the kind of connection to what el- what el- what else exists that I think starts to suggest I think he may have been talking about God, um, and even though he didn't have the same words or the same concepts. So earlier in uh, the Republic, he he really grapples with what is the connection between the divine and anything we would call evil. So that's one place. And then he talks about God's absolute perfection and God's changelessness. And so these are, you know, discussions about God. I put on the, my table here Augustine's Confessions that Augustine repeats almost verbatim in, you know, uh, trying to work out his own grappling with uh, his concept of God. And so, of course, that's a somewhat notorious or famous, at least, episode in Christian theological history, Augustine's uh sort of drinking from the Platonic well and incorporating that into his doctrine of God. But I think it's, uh, it's, it's not just a historical influence. I think it's suggestive of what Plato might uh, have had in mind. Before Plato develops this allegory of the divided line, just before he gets into the allegory of the cave, he also talks about an allegory of the sun. And I, I think that there's, a, there's like a parallel here. So well, I'll just, it yeah. seems mm-hmm. that there should be because the end of the cave is you go out and you see all these things illuminated by the sun. So if right before that he's got an allegory of the sun, we would think that's related. That's right. So he he talks about earlier, you know, the sun giving things uh, like, uh, you know, our ability to see them, but also that which allows them to be alive. And it gives the eye the power of sight. And so it's responsible for our ability to see. Well, just as the, the good, which the sun represents, is a source of reality, of truth, it makes actually intelligible objects or objects we can understand to be possible to understand. And in fact, it gives us the very, you know, capacity for understanding as such. Well, that, I mean, to me, immediately sounds like uh, a pretty standard Christian take on God and the physical world, which is that uh, one of the ways that the reason that we can understand the world through science, for instance, is that God makes a law-like and regular universe. If there were not things that we could refer to as natural laws, then we actually wouldn't really be able to learn much about it. If if the world was such that things just happened and randomly, 
then uh, we wouldn't have physics. We wouldn't have geometry. It just wouldn't make any sense. So God ground, God makes an intelligible universe. And then that's the ground of our being able to understand the universe. No, that's right. Uh, I'm thinking, imagine planning any gift giving if the world is not intelligible, it's chaos. You have no idea what's going to happen. Gift giving, yeah. (laughs) But um, that's right. And also just the power to understand. And this is connected to to some discussions of what it means to bear God's image. Um, We share in God's capacity of understanding in addition to encountering a world that is an embodiment of God's understanding by being at least possibly intelligible. Of course, there's the mystery component of this, which we might get into later. Yeah, that's interesting. So when when thinking about a theistic take, um, the question I have, you know, we do this a lot with the Old Testament and the New Testament. We we do it all the time where if we want to really understand what Jesus is saying, for instance, we might think, well, it'd be good to know what Jewish people of his time thought. And then we will control for that. And then we will have, we tend to think we'll have a better uh, purchase on like what he's getting at. So an example that comes to mind is, um, we think about going the extra mile. Uh, we might just think, oh, you, someone asks you to walk one mile, you walk two miles. It's generosity or selflessness or, uh, you know, you don't get fatigued. But when you learn, for instance, that when uh, Judea is occupied by the Roman military and that it was legal for a Roman officer or soldier to require an Israelite or anybody else they had conquered to walk with them and carry their stuff for up to one mile. And then you have Jesus saying, go another mile. Well, now we're getting into basically civil disobedience. We're getting into nonviolent resistance of like, I'm going to show how unjust it is that you're uh, occupying my country by embarrassing you, by like suffering even more and showing you how unjust this rule is. Right. So that's an example of, of uh, when we can control for the context. Oh, we get my new meanings. Plato, so you're you're already kind of hinting at you think Plato's got this really quite fascinating and nuanced view of God uh, that is in a lot of ways consistent with a Christian understanding of God. What I think would be good to know is what did people believe about God or the gods in around that time, such that how was this a departure from that common understanding? Well, no, that's a great question. Number one, I'm certainly not an expert on uh, Greek religion. However, there was still a lot of common acceptance of some kind of realistic interpretation of, of the gods as depicted by many of the traditional stories in Homer and Hesiod and many of the other traditions. There Zeus, was a lot of, Hercules, you know, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And yet there were other philosophers who were starting to develop, you know, lines of inquiry that are calling this into question. Actually, a great one is Heraclitus. Um, Heraclitus has this concept of the divine logos, and uh, it's a principle of order among the change. Uh, you might recognize that from John one one. That's that's right. Same Greek word. Right? That's right. Yeah. Same Greek word. Exactly. Now I, I would not say the same meaning, but but I but it's not a, the same so, word yeah. randomly. No, so, yep. whatever it meant mm-hmm. in a hundred ish A.D., it is coming from the Greco Roman culture. Uh, which and that word would have initially been 500 years prior. It would have been understood in the Heracletian that's way. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Um, so, so there's, there's there's these nuances to the development. Well, we might say I, I'd call it almost a development of the doctrine of the divine in the Greek philosophical community. And Plato's well aware of many of his predecessors. So Plato himself, what's it seems really clear to me. Uh, and this comes out, for example, in, in the, uh, the dialogue I mentioned earlier, the Euthyphro, 
um, these depictions of the gods as you know squabbling with each other and in competing over whose favor you know one would have and and whether this kind of action or that kind of action is appropriate and it actually is is a is used as a technique to dismantle one of the definitions of holiness which is you know what to do what the gods find dear well if the gods disagree uh hera might find the infidelity that someone is engaged in horrible and hate it and zeus might find it you know worthy of applause and right so you get you these this conflicting idea of what the gods want and plato's like no if there's like a god probably just wants one thing not random things at random times that's what people want aren't we just aren't we just doing people and calling them gods Right, right. And, and uh, in, in maybe not so subtle a way, but uh, somewhat subtle, he doesn't come out and say this in so many terms, but uh, I think he finds this way of depicting the gods incoherent right. and, and is, a, is a, I think, an unrelenting critic of anthropomorphisms. Uh, so basically representing the gods as uh, humans with all of our foibles and limitations. It seems like we can draw a parallel with some of the teachings of Jesus and and map it onto the cave. Let me let me take a stab and you tell me what you think. I've been recently talking a lot about the divorce passage in Sermon on the Mount. So the way that I have enjoyed thinking through the divorce uh, teaching, you know, you Moses permitted you a writ of divorce, but I say don't get divorced basically unless infidelity. And in one of, and in Sermon on the Plain, he doesn't even say that or one or the other. One of them, there's not even an, ex- an exemption. So the looking at the wall is like, well, we just have to do the right thing. And here is the letter of the law. And if we abide by it, God will be happy. And Jesus is like, get out from the cave, get your head above ground and recognize it's about not exploiting each other. It's about love. And you can get a divorce, but your wife can't get a divorce and you can ruin her and basically not give her anything. Uh, She's kind of she's ruined in the eyes of society after that point. You can't do that. The real fact of the matter is that, like, caring for each other is what matters, not following the letter of the law. How, how'd it do? Uh, well, that sounds pretty good to me, although I come from a tradition that's a little, uh, well, let's say, un- unrestrained, well, not unrestrained, but willing to uh, develop the interpretation of the scriptures in light of an ongoing inquiry. I'm talking about the Roman Catholic right, Church. Right, I was say you're Catholic. So, yeah. so you know... Uh, There's a whole set of principles about appealing to, for example, natural law as a set of uh, concepts to uh, apply the teachings of Scripture to new circumstances. So, but I I think what you have to say is is, is quite, you know, apt. It might be that I don't Mm -hmm. have the final correct interpretation of all that. Sure. But in the mind of Jesus of Nazareth at the time, he is sort of trying to like wake them from Absolutely. looking at the wall and get them up out into the sun. Totally. Something I mean, like that. one way of putting that is he's against legalism, right? right? Yeah. That's and I I'm think saying, this yeah. is part of broadening out the uh, the offering, uh, in a sense, broadening out the covenant, having a new covenant to reach the Gentiles and to reach a wider world, which requires at least some kind of encounter with what was peculiar in Judaism and whether, and this is the story of the early apostles, right? Trying to widen, widen that out, uh, which requires thinking about these kinds of questions. Of course, what is the point? You know, I, I love, you know, saying God did not make man for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath God made for man. Right. Um, yeah. For humans, right? Right. And so it's like a, a clear invitation to think about what is the deeper the deeper point of all of this. So, of course, Plato, this is crucial. In fact, I mean, it, it actually gets into some things he says in the Republic about keeping legislation somewhat minimal, because if you have the right leadership, they don't need to have everything codified. They themselves are almost an embodied 
uh, codification of the good. You yeah, know, if you've I, done your work right, which of course is a little bit scary. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I I have thought many a time that Trump's America is the polar opposite of Plato's Republic in that sense. Although, oh, perhaps in its regularity, <laughs> a little bit uh, simpler to, to interpret. The other angle I'd like to take on this theistic version, um, and I'm sure you see this with a lot of your students here. We're at Seattle Pacific University, mm-hmm. Christian College, where you're a philosophy professor. Um, deconstruction. When people deconstruct their faith, uh, it is often feels forcible. People don't tend to choose it. It's not like they think, I'll start questioning everything I've ever held dear now. Something happens and they start to it. It is painful. It's It hurts to move. Your neck is stiff. Your eyes are hurting when you're seeing the fire and then you see the sun. And then you get up and you look at things differently and you have to – and you're trying to discern which aspects of the tradition you were given were just images and in what instances were you actually given something like the real thing. I mean, I mean does that feel like it relates? Oh, it definitely relates. Uh, I mean, it's the process that I, – I don't necessarily want to think of it as a triumphalist process at all. Um, in fact, almost the opposite but that's where we find our students and we somewhat induce it. I think it's our job to induce yeah, some of right. this uh, re-examination. But, but I think largely to, to tr- you know, try to give students some tools for going through that process and to give them some assurance that they're, we're there along with them. But I think there's just no avoiding it. And uh, when, it's, when it's happening with students, uh, you know, it's somewhat apparent in many ways. Uh, there's a grasping at straws. Sometimes there's a digging into the first alternative answer that they found, um, which, you know. <laughs> all, all of these could be subtitles for my own spiritual autobiography. Here. Sure, sure. Well, mine too. <laughs> mine too. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm, I'm so thankful for many of the people who were there along, you know, for, you know, along the way with me, trying to reach out and guide me to some extent. This is a little bit of an aside, but in in some sense, I'm I'm envious of you guys for the clarity that it is sort of your job to induce this kind of doubt and and rethinking because because people are going to a liberal arts university mm-hmm. and they know that they're doing that uh, with the podcast and just in my daily conversations, I don't feel like I have that clear of a mandate, and so the the podcast is made for people who are already on that path, and and uh, almost all of our listeners, I'm sure. Pretty much, they they they're already there, and then this is a resource, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I, you know, I wonder in terms of promoting the podcast or like sharing it with people or bringing up topics when people don't bring them up themselves. Like, am I? When is it an appropriate time to induce that kind of stuff in people to to nudge them out of the cave? Because it's hard to know. In one sense, it's always better to be out of the cave, but in another sense, there are people who won't leave it. You don't know which people those are. And are you just causing them turmoil in the meanwhile? I guess one safe way to play that is is to, you know, enter into the conversations and the controversies that you know are already happening yeah, among yeah. any kind of, you know, searching Christians yeah. uh, or searching maybe Christians, right? People who might be interested in Christianity, but for uh, some concerns they have about what, what they have to sign to be part of the faith. Part of its attitude and, and, and approach, right? An attitude of humility and respect goes a long way. And so uh, you might you might enter into a topic that you, that you think is actually not out there, but might should be out there. Um, but there's a way of doing that 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 you know is not there. You know, a 
approaching it just to be scandalous or just to stir people up, but because you see it as something that, in your your humble opinion as a host or me as a professor, you think the the faithful or the maybe faithful or the searching faithful really need to wrestle with. Yeah, that's true. So uh, that leads to my next question pretty well, which is what, like, give us an idea for the range of reactions and the type of conversation that comes up with your students when you do the cave. Well, uh, it's interesting. I think a lot of uh, students uh, see it, you know, as, as, oh, I know what I'm supposed to think about this. This is a process of enlightenment and we go from being kind of ignorant and just accepting things to really seeing the truth behind stuff. I think that's, that's, pro- that's probably on. how I thought of it at 18 <laughs> in my intro to philosophy. I was like, oh, yeah, I get this. I'm I'm already engaged in this I, or I've, I've already done this maybe. And in these all these all my classmates and fellow students who are not as smart as me or not as have not been paying attention are not watching difficult foreign films, whatever. <laughs> however, I wanted to fill that out. Yeah, right, oh, I'm right. doing it and they're not, which is. Not the best uh, response. Right, right. No, that's one. Uh, another is it's, it's probably o- overly interpreted as a merely theoretical enterprise. And I think Plato is very uh, careful, you know, at key points in, in, in the text to remind us that, that there's a really important practical component to to this. So um, the practical component in part is what he's asked his candidate philosopher guardians to to do you know, by way of training and getting experience and the like. But then secondly, uh, when when they have made it out of the cave, they don't get to stay out of the cave. And so I think sometimes students are struck by this, like, wow, I, I really can't believe they're going to be forced to go back down into that dungeon. And the things that they're going to have to face there are probably going to be difficult. Plato's, you know, makes this really clear. So, you know, there's that bit that, you know, you got to, you're expected to give back and Plato's really... Uh, transparent about that that's in a sense the point but of course he's he realizes there's a big tension there um this is basically you become educated so that you can educate that's right and lead and lead right, and right. Do, you, know, and, you got to get back down into the hurly-burly of of yeah. the scrum of po- of the political realities and because yeah. that's why you went through the training yeah you the, the whole point of uh ascending from the cave is to be able to sort of help the cave dwellers in the in the end and that's a very frankly that's a very christian ethic Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, sure. I mean, in tra- my tradition, it has, you know, some of the like I was educated by Jesuits, you know, especially in college, and it's a long haul, and uh, they're 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 trained as spiritual, you know, spiritual formation, but also an intellectual formation to bring both of those to, uh, you know, certain educational contexts, and uh, they they devote their lives to this. It's also reminiscent of the uh, bodhisattva ideal in Buddhism. So there's the Buddha. And then there's like, you can, in theory, attain enlightenment in, at the Buddha's level. Uh, but the Bodhisattva, which is how they view Jesus and um, and other religious figures from their lens, is the figure who could reach an enlightenment, but stays down among people to teach them. Um, and, and the passage, uh, who did not, uh, did not take uh, quality with God as something to be... What is that thing? Oh, in Paul, oh I think it's the Philippians passage. Yeah, yeah, where Jesus became incarnate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the that, kenosis passage. So that's mm-hmm. in a sense uh, mm-hmm. related to. So that's just kind of a cool um, thread to pick up. There is a kind of a universality of this idea of you find some true things, truer things, or ultimately true things, and you don't just keep those for yourself. That's for the service of mankind, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. 
So, and it's painful, right? And that's yes, part of it. It's, and then that's will, painful to go back. This will be painful. Yeah. And he says, you will be misunderstood. You may even be risking your life. Because when you, and, and he, he, I just read this today again. Uh, there's this, sorry to kind of go off on this, but I think this is important and it's connected to this. There's two ways of being dazzled uh, by your inability to see. One is uh, exiting the cave and being dazzled by the fire and then the light. And the other is uh, experiencing, well, maybe not dazzlement, but basically your eyes don't work right. And that's when you go back down in the cave and you, you're, you're no good at making sense of the shadows, you know, until you, again, acclimate yourself. And, you know, he, he says that it's important to keep in mind these two ways of challenging, being challenged in our functioning. But those who will serve have to go back down and make that second transition. Yeah, that's really interesting. This week's patron-only exclusive episode is a special one. It is a conversation about attachment theory and how that applies to theology and lived faith or lived spirituality. It's a conversation with Mary Clements, provost of Fuller Seminary uh, and a research psychologist for many decades. I don't have an audio clip for you this week uh, to entice you and to get your uh, chops, I don't know, producing saliva. Is that the phrase? Anyway, uh, but I would really recommend listening to this one if you guys are already patrons. And if you're not, of course, patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod.com click become a patron back to the episode with patrick i wonder too if we might wrap into this another idea and i i don't remember the thinker's name and there's a lot of different ways to phrase this but there's first naivety Mm. Second kind simplicity, of... I think is maybe a you know way to put that i think i remember uh cornelius planning a uh, saying this in an essay, but somebody else might have, have said it as yeah, well. Yeah. So some people say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, original faith, deconstruction, reconstruction, uh-huh. or uh-huh. first naivety, uh, catastrophe, second naivety. Mm-hmm. There, there's a mm-hmm. way in which you can go through, um, in, in the context of, of faith, deconstruction, reconstruction, you start out with something, it's given, you go through the painful, unintended process of tearing that down, and then... Ideally, you can return to something, uh, it's going to be different, um, but it's probably going to be better than what you had, and certainly better than having nothing. And then when you've done that, now you can be back into the community and basically offer that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know whether that doesn't necessarily mean you have to become a podcaster or an author or a speaker, but you just offer it to people in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that um, probably the ideal that most listeners of this show have that I certainly have is what we want is to end up with, of course, not that it's going to be ever be completely fixed, but to basically end up with a different and better and more robust love of God that then uh, situates us in the world in a more robust way um, such that that love can fill us and flow through us. And that, that final move going back into the cave, that's kind of, uh, that's, a, that's a good analogy for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's right. And and uh, I, I think it's, you know, what, you know, in de- various domains, people who have reached a high level of expertise are, are stand out by their willingness to then work with uh, the neophytes, the beginners, whether it's uh, someone teaching car shop, who's actually was a master mechanic and, and traveled all over the world working on cars, who's, you know, at your local high school, you know, working working with a shop class and just delights in bringing people into that. 
There's also something kind of mm-hmm. natural about that to bring um, lifespan psychology into it a little bit. I don't remember, again, which thinker it is, maybe Piaget or some other famous psychologist, but basically um, in, a, in a standard healthy human lifespan, a certain age, after the kind of heyday of your career, it is normal and healthy for an adult to enter the phase of their life where they are reinvesting in the youth. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they get value from that. I mean, it, it makes them feel good. They are passing on the skills so we can see how it's beneficial to society as a whole. But it also is tremendous meaning. You see the grandparents sort of teaching their grandkids and spending time with them or, yeah, mentoring people in a professional situation or a spiritual situation or, you know, whatever. That kind of unofficial life coaching of of people with wisdom. And uh, that also feels good and like how things ought to go. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I think, I think so. I mean, just the, on the, uh, I, I, I totally second that on the, on the standard level, which is really important. You know, it's just the giving back and, and then having that time. I think on the second level, and I think Plato took this seriously, and, and there's some references to this. Once you've reached a certain point of appreciation of depth and complexity, you're able to see that at work in simplicity, and and. Uh, and and you don't need to wallow in uh, the complexity as such. You, you can have just as profound an experience by dealing with something as simple as making bread or cookies or fixing a car. You know, what, the wonders of the wrench or the ratchet set or whatever, whatever it is. Or the liturgy, just the basic liturgy, the wonders of the, of the basics of the liturgy. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, so our final section here, which might take a while, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, these are – I have a bunch of questions about what you think the takeaways should be mm. for for a thoughtful Christian when considering the cave and basically sort of Plato's ideas around the cave. Um, and so the first one is is this question of religious pluralism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are people of other faiths that have – that seem to have sort of uh, religious experiences, w- wisdom-building experiences. Uh, and then, of course, there's Plato himself who was in a non-Judeo, pre-Christian world, did not have the Old Testament, did not have Mm -hmm. the New Testament, Mm -hmm. comes up with this thing that's so beautiful that we have been robustly applying to Christian life. Um, You know, uh, just just where where do you go with a question like that? Well, I think taking Plato seriously, uh, to some extent, in his own terms, uh, I think is a helpful way of opening this up. Uh, so one way to take Plato, really how I was, in a sense, introduced to Plato, uh, was that Plato is important because of his contributions to Christian theology. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, someone like Augustine. Being you know, ra- raised Catholic, right? Yeah. 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 So being raised mm-hmm. Catholic, uh, that certainly is not something I learned in evangelical oh, high okay. school. <laughs> uh, but being raised Catholic, yeah, sure. Plato's important for Christian theology. Sure. The, the, the Roman yep. Catholic theological system is the most indebted to probably Greek Greek philosophy. No, that I yeah. think that's that seems right. You yeah. know, at least tied for the for the lead. At least tied. You know, yeah, that. there's a lot <laughs> yeah. there. But but I think you know, learning to just uh, encounter Plato in his own terms, you know, allows one to then start to ask questions like, well, how is I would just say this as a Christian, how is God working with him, right? Um, how is is he encountering what we sometimes call the resources of general revelation? I think as Paul mentions in the letter to the Romans, chapter one. And, and, and then you see how he does it. How does he model the encounter with these questions, you know, doing so with integrity, doing so that takes them seriously in a way that is fruitful for Christians to, to learn from? And, uh, and so then that opens up, I think, well, if he could have this gift to give us, 
who else might have this gift to give us? And of course, one has to sort out the things that, that you might take as gifts that are problematic, um, but, the, but then also the things that are gifts that are not problematic, that are actually giving you something you didn't have or you didn't recognize in the same way for various reasons. So sometimes I call this triangulation, right? You get a different angle on the same thing and it allows you to, to either see something you didn't see or see something in a way you didn't see it before. And, you know, it's worth noting that being a Catholic, it's actually a lot easier for you in your tradition to answer this question about other faiths, because officially, even since Vatican II in the early 60s, the Catholic position on other faiths is we should learn from them. Uh, our goal is not to convert them. It is to learn and be in, um, you know, loving dialogue. And uh, that is just not how most Protestants think of other traditions. And the more conservative you go, the, you know, whatever, the more afraid, the more scared it sounds and the more... Um, you know, arguably exclusivistic and kind of rough it gets. And so that probably for you is not like, that's not the issue. That hasn't been the problem. How do I learn from Plato or people of other faiths? But coming from an evangelical world, this is something I've had to radically deconstruct because I read, you know, I read Plato in college and I was like, this is awesome. You know, and I don't know that I'm, I'm not necessarily a Platonist in my own personal philosophy or theology, but but I can recognize and like the fact that I wanted to even do this, mm -hmm. you know, with you mm -hmm. on this pagan philosopher's right. idea and right. how it applies to faith. That already is five steps past what many people I grew up with would have been comfortable with. Mm -hmm. There's there's one more thing I want to get at with the pluralism question, which is and we're going to come to this again in terms of the specificity of any particular person's religious upbringing. Mm -hmm. So we'll, okay. later we'll talk about it in the context of Christianity, all the different kinds of Christianity. You raise Catholic, I'm raised evangelical. But then there's also the whole world. And so people are raised with all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of superstitions, different religious systems, different cultural systems. The, one of the things I love about the cave is it doesn't matter where you're raised. Some aspect of your life as you first experience it is not real. It is shadows against a wall uh, and you're mm -hmm. in some sense shackled. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when you're born, you don't know. Or mm -hmm. when you hit 20 and your brain is working pretty well, you don't know which things those are. And in fact, you sort of have to go up out of the cave to figure out, oh, actually, some of this was true and some of this wasn't. You know, so I like thinking about this in the context of people and just all all over the world and all a different time, like geographically and through time different points in the earth's history you know well I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about there uh so the 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 story of christianity i think can be interpreted you know as as one of the metaphors to to grapple with this how we've learned from each other you know and, and had to work through a lot of conflicts and in and, and through they get some sense of what was you know overly limiting or overly limited or just wrong maybe about how we were understanding what it means to be a Christian, you know, at some particular place at some particular time. Uh, and the cave, I think, invites us to then hopefully uh, read more Plato and, and, and see how Plato models some of the processes. Because one of them, I think that's important that you can't just get in the cave because it's, it's not really a dialogue. It's telling a story really about the fruits of dialogue, but then much of Plato's works are written as dialogues. The, the Socratic method. Exactly. Is, uh, especially in the early ones where Socrates is the main character, there's this very uh, prescribed way in which people talk. And it, he's just kind of prodding and getting mm -hmm. people... It's actually kind of the way that the therapists talk. Okay. It's rather than mm -hmm. telling you, it's asking you questions and having you follow. But 
in a bit more of a rational kind of a way. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and, and even when Plato, you know, seems in the Republic not to be genuinely open to the questions in the same way those other dialogues, where he has an agenda for sure, he's still modeling the search through this dialogical uh, give and take. And part of it is realizing, I think one of the parts, crucial parts of that is realizing the limitations of partial points of view. And, and in a sense, that's what the allegory uh, depicts. But so does his whole method. Well, and that leads into uh, another one of these uh, ways of thinking about this as a thoughtful Christian, which is postmodernism and, and applying postmodernism to Christianity. And I'll, I'll give a brief description here and you tell me if I'm right. As opposed to modernism or modernity, which was a giant concerted attempt to discover the meta narrative, the, the one story that all rational people can ascribe to and then see the world as it really is. Uh, postmodernism says, sorry, guys, the world's not like that. In fact, people have really different experiences. There are different stories you can tell with the same data, with the same historical events. A lot of times the victors tell the story and they don't necessarily have the truth as their prime goal. It might be maintaining their own power. And and so really, if you want to understand any event, any value, uh, you actually have to consider a bunch of in- contradictory narratives. And that's, you know, like it or not, the, the way the world actually is. And the way that you would apply this to Christianity is to say, well, look, there are, there's like a liberation. The way that people have read the Gospels who were in poverty and political oppression. There's the way people have read it who are women. There's, you know, all these different ways of reading, and these all have something to contribute. And so, okay, is that right? Mm-hmm. That sounds, well, yep, that sounds uh, familiar to me and, and also, you know, uh, on track. So the mm-hmm. way I might think about this is that you get out to the sun uh, and you got out of your cave – but maybe there are like a bunch of different caves and the same sun is lighting up things around your cave entrance or cave exit. But the same sun's also lighting up other cave exits and it's the same sun, but different settings. Does that, does that feel? No, that's good? interesting. Yeah, no, that feels like uh, at least it's a it's a helpful riff, I would say, on on Plato's allegory. Now, the one thing the one thing about a view of modernity that that might peck up on Plato is this this there's one absolute truth, right? Whereas if they all escape from their particular caves, they emerge out into one in the same light of day. But you can also imagine they're separated by different uh, canyon walls or what have you, right? Yeah, or, you know, we can right. fix this in lots of different ways where they think that their landscape that's lit up is maybe the landscape, that's but it's the not, landscape. right? It's the not, sun yeah. is still the same sun, which is the source of all truth, you know, and on from there. I um, never really yeah. know exactly where I fit on the in the postmodern conversation Officially, because the way that I tend to think of it is, yeah, there's just one sun. There is just one state of affairs, at least for the kinds of things that are objective. And there's at least one state of affairs for the kinds of things that are subjective. It's just a very long list of everybody's subjective experience and you know, everything. You, you couldn't you couldn't explain it. It does exist. It's not the case that I both felt sad and did not feel sad at the same instant, right? right? right. You know, So right. there is some case. It's more about like, what kind of access we have to that absolute truth. So it's, I don't doubt that like Jesus either was the son of God or not, but what does son of God mean? 
How am I interpreting that? What are various ways people have interpreted it? Is that how Jesus understood it? Does it matter if Jesus understood it that way? I can't definitively answer any of those questions. I can do my best. And so for me, the postmodern thing, I don't know that I'm a true postmodern in that I really don't think there is a fact of the matter. Or if I'm just like, uh, I want to have enough intellectual humility that I acknowledge that whatever the truth is, I don't have access to it. I tend to go with that myself. Um, Okay, well, you're a philosopher. So what is that called? Well, uh, I mean, there's various views. I mean, one could call it, you know, fallibilism, but, you know, a kind of realism or objectivism that there are, you know, there are, there's a reality. There is a truth, a a truth that we can have or lack uh, about that reality. Um, But also, you know, Peirce, Charles Saunders Peirce is uh, one of the apostles of fallibilism that, you know, American philosopher, I've never really studied him so much, but uh, I just think this is a great point that we, we know we are prone to mistakes and limited points of view. And and so uh, and Socrates humility is, is perfectly in keeping with this. You know, there's a more radical one that that really doubts that there is one truth even to be found, and uh, and there will just inherently is there are multiple perspectives, and and there's just no reducing the one to the other by any reference to anything like uh, a measuring stick. Yeah, maybe you could make an argument uh, from quantum physics about that. Something like you can know mm-hmm. the position or the speed, but not right. both. Right. And so maybe there's a sense in which there just isn't one. I don't know if that really works for other things, but that's interesting. I, you know, I think it's a good question. It might depend upon the question or the, the yeah. kind of entity we're inquiring into. I was um, just thinking, mm-hmm. though, when you were saying it lines up with Socrates, the more – I think of it all the time. The more I learn, the more I recognize how little I know. That's one of his – I don't remember which dialogue it's from, but that's a famous – It's from the Apology. From the Apology. When he's trying to deal with the or, the, Del, the Delphic Oracles – proclamation that no one is wiser than Socrates. And he, he thinks, I don't know much of anything. How could this be right? And he starts to test it. Yeah. And so then he, what he comes to is, I know the most insofar as I acknowledge that I don't know very much. And I feel like that becomes more true to me every year. And the way that I've been kind of thinking about it is like, so I learned something, let's say you know, I'm in grad school to become a psychologist right now. So I learned something about whatever, schizophrenia, or I learned something about uh, you know, neurodevelopment in infants, it opens up 20 new questions oh. that I don't know the answer to. Right. <laughs> and if I, and if I mm-hmm. abstract out, if I zoom out a bit, what I see over the course of, let's say a month in the program is I've recognized how much bigger the world is. So it's not that I didn't learn things. I haven't reduced the number of things I learn. It's more like the proportion of what I know Given how big I now understand the world to be, that keeps going lower. Mm-hmm. So that's the paradox is it's right. not about discrete yes. facts, but it's proportion of the world. That's right. That's right. And yeah. there's no reason to believe that that will ever change. So if I know 50 times what I know now, I will think the world is 500 times bigger or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. When I die, some exponential right? function that maps this or what have you. Yeah. Right. A geometrical expansion. Yeah. No, that's right. And and it's what, some, what I sometimes call, the, you know, one of the problems of infinities so in any case, uh, that's keeping with the spirit of Socrates is, is I think we realize that, you know, so I've given up trying to read all these books in here, for example. <laughs> yeah, you have right? a lot. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot. But I mean, how many compared to a real library, you know, minuscule, and I'm minuscule, not even going to get yeah. through all these. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've just started thinking about that as well. <laughs> Another <laughs> Sorry thing. Sorry to laugh. No, I know. It's true. Yeah. No, mortality. It's... We are accepting it. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. we are accepting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that came up when we were chatting about this earlier is... There is an application here for a thoughtful Christian to think through how Plato thought of like being itself and how that's actually really a notion of God that 
is now is now quite mainstream in serious theology. That you know, it's Paul Tillich. He, he's he's here on the shelf. Uh, I don't know if it's Tillich or if it's someone else, but uh, God is not a being. God is the ground of being. God mm-hmm. is that by that which like till- anything mm-hmm. can exist. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. maybe that's a move that we could like. I know that in my mind, uh, but like I don't th- tend to think of God that way. Like naturally, I don't do it. That would be a good takeaway, I would think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, now that raises all kinds of questions, um, and uh, this has been mulled over. You know, uh, gosh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the French philosopher who really makes a big deal out of going beyond being. It'll come back to me later. But in any case, Aquinas uh, discusses a very similar kind of point in trying to work out some of the ways in which we talk about God's being. So one is that uh, there's a kind of ontological difference between being an unconditioned being and then everything else is a conditioned being. But uh, even there, you know, the distinctions among the meaning of being is is uh, something that we've been struggling with in Christian theology for a long time. So unconditioned you know, being is like uh, you just are a being that exists uh, without nothing, – nothing had to happen for you to exist. And then a conditioned being is like us – well, we only exist as beings because God created us. But Tillich is trying to even subvert that and going, no, God's not even an unconditioned being. God's not a being. Yeah. There's no God that exists in the way that other things exist. That seems right to me. Okay. Okay. No, yeah, you I, you're well, more I struggle a... with that okay. because I think that, well, I mean, you can, you can do it with it two ways, I think. Uh, and I've never really tried to work this out carefully, but... Uh, that we might get trapped in the word entity, for example, yeah. right? And if and we, you know, one way is like entity is entity, right? And if so, you're either an entity like the book or the cup, or you're beyond entity because you're God. And uh, you know, someone like Aquinas says this term might have an analogical meanings, like or, or distinct meanings, where this being uh, gets its meaning by reference to the ultimate meaning of being, which is God's being. But it, of course, falls short of it, and it might, in some sense, that qualifies almost as a categorical difference. So we might, you know, it might be a bit of a potato potato thing. Um, yeah. Although it does sound impressive to then change the whole thing. We're not even talking about a being, right? Which Plato says. Plato says the same thing. He says the form of the good is maybe beyond being. So not that they all have the same concept in mind, but I think they're struggling with the basically the inadequacy of human language. When we are talking about the things that we encounter and the beings that are or what exist means when we talk about X exists, that uh, when you get to something such as God, uh, you really are, you know, you're in a different space, maybe no space. I mean, and even space, that just is obviously not up to snuff to capture it. Yeah, you just, you run into these limits of language. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, which actually is an interesting way to lead into my next question, which is about atheists and agnostics. And there's something to me, first of all, not everybody stays a theist. They don't stay a Christian forever. They don't necessarily stay an atheist or an agnostic. Sometimes these are stages. Uh, and then when we die, we die in whatever the most recent stage was that we were in. And we may have stayed that way. We may have been that way for a long time or not. Um, but there is something about the chaos, the upheaval of the cave, of uh, leaving the cave, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I think should lead us to a bit more compassion and understanding for people shifting their identities over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what I would want to argue is that uh, for me anyway, in myself, I think 
when I'm fighting against that compassion, it's because I feel like I've got something to lose with my own identity and I'm feeling insecure. But if I'm really going to be honest and someone says, I'm an agnostic now, what I ought to go is, of course you are, you know, or of course some people will be for some time, maybe forever, maybe not. But like this stuff is complicated and you did have to get out of your cave. And it just depends on what cave you were born into. And so for some people, they got to tear it all down. And and maybe even and I I guess I'm open to for some people they should they should be gone forever mostly in the case of like serious trauma and stuff like that where it's mm-hmm. just actually not healthy for them to return generally my goal my hope for people is that they can return to a kind of faith because I am a theist I believe God is loving and there whatever there means right right okay right, right. That's whatever right. existence <laughs> means um, what do you think about about that sort of that inherent chaos and then letting ourselves be a little more flexible with people's labels over time. I, I struggle with the same thing you do, because when somebody has a different label from what I have, and they were in something like the label that I self-described as, I feel stupid, right? I feel like, oh, I'm missing something, you know? Wow, what, what what did I not read? Or what argument have I misinterpreted? Or, or whatever. So, that, But that's my problem. That's interesting. That's, yeah. a, that's a kind mm-hmm. of an... So my insecurity, I think, was a bit more like, what... Uh, I won't be okay because I've gotten something wrong about God. And yours is more like, oh, what did I miss that they got? And like, am I intellectually inferior to them? Or or did I not properly appreciate the suffering of these people who have suffered? You know, right. people who don't believe because of the problem of evil, for instance. Like, are they more empathetic than I am? Well, totally. And as a Catholic, know? people who are taking more seriously the scandals in the church than I am. You know, why do I keep writing checks to this institution? I really struggle with that. Yeah. You know, And we can go on from there. But... There's a whole story there I won't get into right now that 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 is that is relevant to this question. No, look, tell um, it. We got time. Well, I, and I think uh, at some point when I I was an agnostic, I probably would have called myself an atheist. You know, in my late twenties when I was in graduate school, and it took a while to kind of come back to participating. You know, I think uh, with a straight face in the liturgy, um, having you know thought about trying other things and doing that a little bit, but. Um, Anyway, you know, I, I had to face the question, how do I want to raise my kids? I think that really made this urgent when I had little girls, and now it was time to, you know, make those decisions seriously. Which is a common yeah. time in the lifespan for that to happen. People think afresh, uh, as they should, about religious questions when they become parents. In fact, my wife and I are between churches right now. Um, I've talked about how we left our Presbyterian church uh, but our main motivation for finding another one is she's pregnant. Okay. And so, you know, we, we Congratulations. have, thank you. We have a couple years <laughs> till that will really matter in terms of, mm-hmm. although I, I do have a kind of a more liturgical Catholic Orthodox thing where I sort of want him to grow up with the sounds of church, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, the aesthetics mm-hmm. of it yeah, the as smells. early as possible, the <laughs> smells, right. Yes. I, I want him to associate that with comfort and with love and, and stuff. And so we, I think that's a perfectly rational motivation. I don't think that there's anything crutch like about that. It's like, yeah, now we're thinking really seriously about character formation and and life experience formation. And so that's right. We that's right. Yeah, it's time to find a church and and building kind of like reconnecting maybe with a, a larger community that we would like them to participate in as well. But uh, on a on a related matter, maybe somewhat different. I I'm just more and more in, in struggling with well. Number one, you know, the question was Plato actually interacting with God, and then, and then on a different matter, like how does God make God's being or God's, you know, 
God's doings to go with that. I don't know what to say in the telic thing. The yeah, yeah, God's yeah. ground of beingness. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's cool. Yeah. Available to people. And part of that has to be, uh, I think, in my view, we have to be open to uh, people encountering God, really, but in ways we have a hard time recognizing. Yeah, like one way of phrasing this would be, if Plato was interacting with the real God that I interact with, should we have expected in 380 BC or whatever for God to have been like, go find Jonah and Isaiah, uh, travel south to the land of the Israelites? You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah, right, 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 right. That yeah. doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if we wouldn't expect God to do that, then where would we look for evidence? Might yeah, it right. be in the forms? I mean, might it right. be mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. writing that we have from him? No, that's right. We say all the time, God does things in God's time and in God's ways, not in our time and our ways. You know, I think this is something I'm sure it's you've heard this. Maybe it's been said on private prior editions of your show, but uh, please give me the earnest, seeking, honest, humble atheist over the self-righteous, sanctimonious, non-searching Christian. Uh, I'll take the former any day. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, uh, this is the cave gives a, a nice way of thinking about that because I've feel that all the time. Um, I think a lot of people watching the news in 2019 can't help but feel that about certain segments of, of public Christianity. But this is maybe a way of thinking about it. A sincere atheist who has, who has made a similar trek or attempted to make the same trek that I've attempted to make out of the cave versus someone who is a Christian who has stayed where they were planted. And we just happen to be looking at some similar shapes on the mm-hmm, wall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a lot more in common with the with the fellow or or woman who has gone up and now we can talk about that yes. trip and what we found and we can we can have civil conversation about what our how our experiences were different, how our intuitions are different. And that's so you were saying with an atheist, I've been thinking for a while now like give me a, a sincere believer of another faith as well who's put the work in. And I'd, I'll take that over an unthinking Christian. Yeah. It's a that, similar move. You know, totally, totally. And, uh, you know, I mean, I want to be open to people whose, I don't know, calling or task in life is not necessarily to, to do what I recognize as, you know, battle with philosophy, right? There's all that, right? And I don't want to be judgy myself. But sometimes you just, you know, you know what it's like to run into a certain kind of rigidity. And um, and it closes off certain things that I think are important for us to, to wrestle with, you know? It seems like there's to return briefly to the to the pluralism thing too, which also ties into that. If we wouldn't have thought, taking Plato as an example, if we would not think that God would say to Plato, Plato, travel to the land of the Israelites, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then why would we think different about the Buddha or Muhammad? Muhammad's a little harder, maybe because he's. But I don't know. But certainly the Buddha or the the founders of Hinduism or Lao Tzu and Taoism or Confucius. Like, if we wouldn't think that for Plato, what are the consequences for these other faiths? Right, right. Well, I mean, there's like by parity of reasoning, uh, you know, he, he, there's a reason why God didn't, you know, beam them over to Israel, you know, yeah. or vice versa. And I don't know what that is. I don't presume to know what that is. But I think that, you know, I... I don't even want to say much about it because I think that uh, there, I have so much to learn about those different traditions. And I don't want to be uh, patronizing, right, by saying, oh, they're probably great. You know, I don't know that much about them, right? Um, but uh, I've looked more into Islam. And I will, I will say this, that uh, I haven't learned that much about it yet. 
but my way in has been through medieval philosophy and watching how uh, thinkers after you know Islam exists for a few centuries it, it and and they have some prosperity partly from having a lot of land which has its own story they also had access to many of these ancient Greek texts and they start to do the things in wrestling with them also in uh, conjunction with wrestling with their own theological tradition and uh, what we recognize as medieval philosophy takes takes flight and then actually Christian medieval philosophy learns many of the moves from what happened earlier in Islam and I just think uh, it's it's actually quite beautiful yeah amen um, all right two more bits okay. on this okay and then we're done mm-hmm. the first is there's something about the promise of both pain in the journey and the, and the difficulty of it, but also the reward at seeing things figuratively in a new light. Anything to say about that? Uh, well, I, I'd love to say that the, the discomfort and the disorientation, you know, completely goes away. That, that would be a lie. Um, yeah, I think you, sure. you get used to it a little bit in certain ways. Students often ask me, how do you deal with always having these questions? And, um, I don't know. Part of it is, well, that's just what I do, right? I, I ride a unicycle, right? It's 10 feet in the air. It's, it's I, you know, you can fall, but I'm kind of used to re- rebalancing myself. And then, uh, and I think second part of adjusting to something like that is, you know, but but there is a, Plato's serious about that. There's disorientation is there. And if you're not sure you're out of the cave, then you're going to be experiencing some, especially, oh, there's a new bend in the cave, right? Uh Anyway, but also being able to worry less about what you don't know and, you know, try to appreciate um, the, you know, the limitations of what you have for what it's worth. Like I talked about earlier, this kind of second naivete or simplicity, but you're able to see what's involved in that in a way that you couldn't before. Yeah, yeah it's it's kind of like I've been I, I have decided to take like films more seriously so I, I'd watched movies my whole life, but I started watching films about films and reading more and listening to podcasts from people who know a lot about films and and talk about them in different ways. And I just like I lost a certain kind of just sheer naive enjoyment, but I've also picked up a lot of really nuanced appreciation of them. And and I I wouldn't go back, you know, like it it is better to have. It is I, – I don't enjoy some movies that I might have used to enjoy, but the more robust enjoyment of the good ones makes it worth it. It's like becoming a connoisseur of poetry or wine or – you know, wine I'm staying away from because <laughs> money-wise, I yes, just right. – I don't ever want to go there. But also I think that I'm in a, a new and unanticipated stage of deconstruction and the, there was an additional turn in the cave that I didn't realize and it's – um, I don't, we won't get into it a bunch now, but it's, it's, it really is kind of around philosophy and just, um, the diversity of people of goodwill and sound mind and, and how hard it is to answer these things, uh, which I, you know, I studied philosophy in undergrad and I thought I took that seriously, but I think actually I just wanted a shortcut and, and I'm realizing now fully that I, there's no shortcut. Uh, it is just that hard. Uh, and I, my faith needs to exist despite you know, despite no shortcut. Last bit here, uh, you mentioned earlier a couple times that there, for Plato anyway, and, and as he lays out this ideal society and he describes these philosopher kings, these philosopher warriors, there is a real practical component to them becoming that way. 
And I thought about discipleship. So um, Dallas Willard, great Christian philosopher, USC, died five years ago or so. Uh, he, he talked about the great omission. So the great commission, we always think of it as go and make converts. But he's like, doesn't say converts, says disciples. And uh, yes, we actually uh-huh. have a pretty good, robust mm-hmm. map of what the disciples did. There mm-hmm. are four gospels about it in Acts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't really do that. We don't make disciples. We make converts. And there's a correlation here to Socrates and Jesus, to Plato's way of thinking and and the disciples. And I'm just curious, anything you have to say about you know applying this sort of as a Christian? Well, uh, I, I, I hate to just use this. It's, it's kind of tried and true in certain ones. But preach the gospel every day. Use words if necessary. You know, is a, is a guidepost, sometimes attributed to Francis of Assisi. I don't know if he actually said that. But, you know, meet, if you're going to make disciples, uh, I think, you know, number one is what does it mean to be a disciple? And a lot of that's practice, practicing the gospel. And, and of course, that's living out what it's like on the ground. Um, and, I, I, you know... We, I think, in my tradition, an emphasis on that are the, the various kinds of uh, works of mercy that one can do and, and living out, in a sense, the virtues. So it's less emphasis on talk and more on service. And then, you know, of course, as people sort of, if you do that to some degree, people will want to know why, you know, and what, what, where are you coming from? How did you get to be this way? And, and you can enter into a process of I think spiritual formation may be with them and they may go their way. They may actually go your way. You know, uh, it's not in your hands, but I think that's part of what I think Jesus meant by make disciples of all the nations is share in what it's like to participate in the life of God best we can by the lives we lead, lead and the lives we share. So you're a philosopher in 2019. If you were to have been a philosopher in Plato's day or Aristotle's day, uh, it, it was, it was like joining an order mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. monks or something, right? So right. you would go live at these schools. You would have a master. You They would have like a whole life program for you. That looks closer to me to discipleship of Jesus than what we do today. Ah, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I think that's pretty yeah, it's, inarguable. It's monastic in a way. It's, yep. you know, mm-hmm. and that's what the the early monastic orders, monks and nuns were were trying to do. They were They were trying to become real disciples of Jesus. My question for you is, uh, so now you are a philosopher. That's what it looks like today is we're here in this office and you have your wife and kids and everything. Uh, would you have taken uh, Would you have taken vows in an order to be a philosopher if that's what it meant to be one today or if that's the way it was to be a Christian? Either, either way. Answer either way of philosophy or Christianity. No, I think it's a really good question. I mean, I've thought about it, uh, uh, but I guess all I can say is it's hard to know what I would have done, but I think I would have taken that seriously because I did really feel like this was something, a life pathway I really had to pursue. And I, I also was very interested in romantic relationships and in starting a family, but, you know, that, that happened a little uh, in, in certain ways different from how I might have envisioned it. So let's put it this way, but I've stuck on the pathway of pursuing, you know, these early fascinations and, and um, passions of, of philosophy. So if that was the only way, I think I would have gone it. You would have been I, yeah, I would have. I, I think I, I, don't, I wouldn't. I mean, I, that's why I went to graduate school. I didn't know how I'd love otherwise. I tried having another job and doing something different, and it just didn't work. <laughs> Do we have any <laughs> – is there any future uh, that we might see of something like this? you know, resurfacing, like in, in the wake of our just consumerist culture and all of that, you know, like 
Jesuits uh, are are uh, rapidly decreasing in number of you know actual Jesuits. People are mostly unwilling to sort of forego family and and career and stuff. Uh, do we do we reach a point where that begins again because of a, a lack of I don't know depth in people's life or meaning? Oh, I, I I don't know. It's hard to say, but I can see that you do see people prolonging having children. And that's not unrelated. Then some people, you even hear them say, I don't plan on having children because of, you know, uh, what what they think might happen to the earth or what life will be like or, you know, maybe other kinds of uncertainty. So if if uh, I I, I don't know, I I hate to prognosticate. I don't know. But I would just say this, that this search for meaning and if certain uh, church related kinds of traditions can offer something that is attractive to people, that, that does provide meaning. And that does provide community and in a pathway for inquiry that might include uh, maybe not celibacy, but uh, uh, certainly uh, um, taking vows of, you know, something like poverty or making a commitment to that community. But it's not weird. (laughs) Then I I don't know. I can see that being attracted to people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Patrick McDonald, thank you so much for your time today, man. This is great. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Huge thank you to Patrick McDonald for that conversation today. And thanks to Scott Sanjemi for his wonderful edit of that conversation. Again, to become a patron, uh, it starts at five bucks a month. There are also scholarships. If money is really tight right now, email me about that. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Um, but if you do want to become a patron, that's patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. We'll see you guys not next week or the next week. Hopefully you guys will check out an episode that uh, you haven't heard before. Um, Or if you're a patron, go back through some of those exclusive episodes, uh, maybe from before you became a patron, that you could catch up on. All right. That's enough for me. We'll see you guys in the new year. There's some really exciting topics coming up. I don't want to spoil it, but really good stuff. So I'm excited for that. See you then. Bye.